Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. And hello, we're back. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Paul. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you. I'm very excited about today because, believe it or not, the guest we're having, I actually interviewed him on this same podcast, a previous iteration of it. I think it was back in October 2016. That's three years ago. It was one of my favorite episodes. I'm very much looking forward to today. But I'll let you introduce both the topic and our guest. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking, you know, within the context of internationalization, we're going to be talking specifically about U.S. expansion. You know, this is a topic we come back to over and over again. With every new company that we invest in, there is a fundamental point in their journey when they will realize that their domestic market, whether that's UK, France, Germany, is, is really not going to be big enough for them to build a, you know, a category-leading global tech business at real scale. And the obvious place they will look to is, is the US. And you know, there are so many examples, good and bad, that we can draw on. But you know, this is a topic we need to keep coming back to that says, how do you think about US expansion? When should you be approaching? What should you do? Who can help you? And I'm delighted that today we've got Dan Glazer. Dan is uh, an American technology lawyer with Wilson Sonsini. He's the managing partner of their London office. And since 2010, Dan has been supporting high tech fast growth UK organizations figure out how to expand successfully into, into the US and, and really connecting the ecosystems across the, the pond. I, for probably eight or nine years, he did a really good job of, of really convincing everybody that he was based in London while he was actually commuting on a weekly basis back and forth from New York. But I'm delighted that he has actually relocated to London Early this year, Dan, or no, it was last year, wasn't it? It was uh, summer of, of, of 20, 2018 when uh, apparently with, with, the, with the London weather that summer, uh, unwittingly, I had moved uh, to Greece, uh, in fact, <laughs> not, not actually London. <laughs> it, it, did, it did feel like it. But, you know, Dan has been an um, indefatigable supporter of the UK tech scene and of Notion and of our portfolio companies. And the Wilson, Sonsini and Dan personally support way more than half of our portfolio, nearly every single one of our companies that's operating in the US. So Dan, welcome to our podcast, Pain of Scale. Stephen, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe your kind of your mission or your purpose for, for Wilson Sonsini in London? So in short, you know, our view is that London and, and the UK, I mean, Europe broadly, but especially London and, and the UK, are just a fantastic place to launch and, and scale a technology business. And what we've seen over the years is that, is that when, you, when you truly go global, you know, at some point as a company, you, know, you end up figuring out what is your US strategy. And that is what we've come to London for. And what I've been you know, working in London for a number of years on is helping UK and European technology companies through their US life cycle, right? So launch, scale, raise money, commercial partnerships, and exit in the US, you know, either through an, an, an M&A exit or, or an IPO. You know, I think, uh, I, think I, I, I would describe the view of the world is that, that there is no better place 
in the world to start a technology company than the UK and no better place to scale and, and go global from that than the United States. And that's why this, this partnership is just so important. I'm intrigued. So like you've been doing this for close to 10 years, specifically European and UK tech companies moving into the US. So kind of three interrelated questions, if I, if I can. What's changed in that time? What have you learned and then how have you changed the advice that you're giving to, to companies? Sure. No, I, I think a lot of what has changed in the ecosystem, I think, has been, has been driven in part by the scale of the funding that is now available in, in the UK and Europe. And, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll talk for a little bit about London in particular. When I first started coming, coming to London in, in 2010, in 2010, there was $100 million total of venture capital invested into uh, in, into London technology companies. In 2017, that was up to $3.3 billion. That's where it's sort of hovering now the last few years is in the, the sort of high $2 billion, low, low $3 billion range for, for London technology companies. And it's, it's incredible to me how the ecosystem has changed in, in that regard, where you know, the, the, the number of seed funds, Series A funds, growth capital funds, the sort of knowledge base that, that's there in terms of how to build a company, how to invest in, in a company. I mean, it's really extraordinary how that has been built and scaled you know, over the last several years. And you know, in terms of how we end up advising companies and maybe the stage at, at which we, we end up meeting them, uh, what we end up talking about is I, you know, I think when we met companies in, let's say, 2011, 2012, 2013, disproportionately, we would be having a discussion centering around moving to the United States and particularly moving to the United States to find early stage capital. Right? We would regularly meet seed and series A stage businesses who would talk in terms of moving to the U.S. to find money without really any sort of focus on whether or not the U.S. was, was the right place for them to go commercially and operationally. I have to say that certainly in the last few years, we rarely, if ever, have that conversation. Conversations that we've had for a while now center around expanding to the U.S. Right, from a U.K. base or after they've raised, let's say, a seed or Series A round in the U.K., it's all about going to the U.S. because that's what makes commercial sense you know, and, and building up a U.S. team and then potentially after proving out product market fit and traction in the U.S., then maybe doing a follow-on round from U.S. investors. And certainly, you know, in terms of building a strong transatlantic ecosystem where you've got strong you know, UK-headquartered, UK-based businesses that are going global, that are becoming success stories in, in the U.S., I think you know, that expertise and that you know, level of early and growth stage funding in the UK is crucial. It, it makes for a much uh, healthier ecosystem here in the UK and in London, and, and, and it makes for a much more interconnected transatlantic tech ecosystem. Let's kind of dig into that that you mentioned about product market fit. And it's an elusive thing to, to nail down. But one of the things that we've seen more and more of is that founders challenging themselves to say, well, actually, I've established a domestic business and I've got product market fit here and I'm starting to scale. But I now need to prove that in the US, maybe before I even put feet on the ground. I mean, one of the, night, the great things about working with, with you guys, of course, is you know, you're lawyers, but you're also business advisors. So I'm just interested in your perspective in terms of how can companies, UK, European companies, take the first steps to prove product market fit while minimizing risk and cost associated with that. 
Yeah. I think that we've, we've certainly seen trends develop you know, over the last several years. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll sort of talk through a pattern that we've seen, particularly with, with B2B SaaS companies, as they, you know, as, as they look to scale from, let's say, a UK or European base and going into the US. And, and you're absolutely right to, to point out that it, it's, it's doing that in a way that you know, manages risk. It'll never be risk-free, but you know, sort of appropriately manages risk, you know, and then also appropriately manages cost. And so, I, I think when when sort of U.S. expansion gets started is when we see we see companies selling in remotely to the United States, and it's you know very often that that happens you know or organically. Let's say that they're initially selling into companies in the U.K. or elsewhere in Europe, and those U.K. and European larger companies have U.S. operations, and then the U.S. side of the business looks to looks to become a customer. Or the executive team, the sales team at a UK company might uh, fly over to the US for conferences or other meetings, maybe goes on trade missions and starts to pick up customers. But one, one way or the other, what we usually see as, as a pattern is that there's some level of remote sales that take place. And, and to do that, you know, that is very light touch in terms of any sort of setup that's re- required. You can do those transactions you know, under UK law. You know, they, they don't have to be under US law, for example. You don't necessarily need to set up a US company to do those transactions. You don't need to put feet on the ground necessarily in the US to do those transactions. You can manage cost. And then what we find is over, over time that as the traction starts to build up and the customer base starts to build up, the company eventually realizes that, that there are, they're leaving opportunities on the table. That if, if they just had you know, a few people on the, on the ground in the U.S. and they could capture that many more opportunities and support that many more customers. What a lot of companies do then is that the, the next step of engagement will, will be to hire, let's say, part-time contractors, part-time salespeople, part-time customer support, but they'll hire them as contractors. Right. And that, again, is, is much uh, lower cost and sort of lower risk than going straight to, to building up a, a team of employees on the ground in, in the U.S. And the reason that it is lower cost, lower risk, is that you don't need to set up a U.S. entity and, 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 put, and put all the infrastructure around it to hire contractors. Right? But it does allow you, as a company, to, to have representatives of the, of the organization on the ground in real time able to respond to customers and potential customers. And then eventually, the scale of the, the of the deals that you're able to do as a, as a UK or European co- company, or or just the number of, of of opportunities that are out there, become so material that it, then you've proven out the model and you're ready to make the full investment of, of launching it in, in the US. You know, putting full time employees on the ground, potentially sending over uh, individuals from HQ, hiring people locally. And putting together the infrastructure that goes with running a U.S. business, right? Bank account, HR and payroll, you know, outside advisors on legal and tax, um, et cetera, right? And what we've seen is that the companies that are most successful don't put all of that infrastructure in place until they, they've built up some confidence that there is traction, there is product market fit. In other words, the most successful companies that we've seen coming out of the U.K. and Europe are the ones that are being pulled into the United States by customers attraction um, by clear product market fit, as opposed to the ones who go to the U.S. because of some sort of, let's say, irrational inevitability, that they have to be in the U.S. because everybody goes to the U.S. No. I mean, we actually, uh, on a regular basis, meet companies who we end up talking out of going to the U.S. because they don't really have the sort of story yet that is likely to succeed. But if you can really sort of get to the point as a company where you're pushing at the open door, then you've really de-risked the market entry and sort of justified 
the spend to support the market entry. Let's dig into that a little bit more. I like that kind of visual of being pulled into the market. And I, I was talking to a, a USBC and quite a few, quite a few of the, the, the US West Coast and East Coast B2B SaaS investors are looking increasingly at Europe. And they're, they're seeing a little bit of an arbitrage there. They're thinking, well, actually, these companies are really quite attractive from a valuation perspective and we can have a big impact. But they want to see 20, 30 percent of their revenues being generated from from the US, maybe just as a kind of a, a, as a guideline. So let's say I've done that and you, you pointed to some of the things, but the game changes quite a lot, doesn't it, when you decide to start hiring people. And that's when you really need to get serious about your kind of corporate infrastructure and the, the support that you put around your employees. Could you maybe just talk us through some of those kind of key steps that, that they need to go to before they they really kind of build out the U.S. organization? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of selling in remotely, you don't really have to put much in the way of infrastructure on the ground in the U.S. But when it really, really sort of kicks in is when you decide to put employees on, on, on the ground in, in the U.S. And, you know, as you said, that often happens when, when you're, let's say, generating 20%, 30%, 40% of revenue in the U.S., and you find that, that your customers are saying that you need to provide uh, in-market customer support. You need to provide in-market, let's say, sales support, BD support, et cetera. And so at that point, there's sort of a, a checklist of things that, that are steps that you'd want to take to set up appropriately in, in, in the U.S. And you know, sort of run down that list briefly. I mean, the first one, let's say, is, is legal, right? That the the bright red line of when when you would create a company in the U.S. is typically when you hire your first U.S. employees. You do not want to hire them generally out of your U.K. or other European parent company. You typically want to hire them out out of a out of a U.S. Subsidiary, but that's quick. The U.S. subsidiary can be created in 24, 40, 48 hours or so. Putting into place appropriate employment contracts, employment documents with U.S. employees. Keeping in mind that sort of each state is slightly different. We don't really have national employment laws in the same way that you might in many other countries. You know, putting in place, let's say, U.S. versions of, of your your reform customer contracts, and then making sure that you're all set up in terms of U.S. data privacy and U.S. intellectual property. From a tax standpoint, it's making sure that you're getting appropriate U.S. tax advice, getting your tax ID number from the Internal Revenue Service, making sure you're making all appropriate tax filings, setting up your U.S. bank account that will be tied to the uh, the U.S. subsidiary to handle payroll and incoming revenues from customers. Uh, if you're sending anyone over from HQ, making sure that, that you are uh, talking to immigration specialists who can help you get the right visas to go to the U.S., and, Immigration, in fact, is the long lead time item for companies going to the U.S. Everything else can be done in, in a total of four weeks or so. Visas these days are running four to six months. Right? We usually talk to companies and say, if you're planning on sending anyone over to the U.S. to work in the next four to six months, it's not too early to start speaking with uh, immigration specialists. You'll want to put into place appropriate business insurance. Most of the time, U.K. or European business insurance does not extend to U.S. operations just because the, the risk environment in the U.S. is different than in the U.K. and Europe. Putting in place appropriate outsourced HR and payroll. In the U.S., it's very typical for the employer to provide health insurance, retirement benefits to its employees. And rather than re reinventing the wheel and getting a health insurance plan for two or three employees to start, most U.S. companies will sort of leverage uh, what's called a professional employer organization or a PEO and, and take advantage of the fact that the PEO has, let's say, a million employees that, that it works with and gets much better rates on, on, the, on those plans. A couple other things, making sure that you've got the right office lease. And then finally, I think what, what, what I'd point out is, is making sure that the company is taking advantage 
of any sort of incentive programs being offered by state and local U.S. Uh, economic development organizations. Uh, you, may, you may have heard that in 2018, Amazon sort of narrowed down its its list of cities in the U.S. to, I think, about 20 finalists of where it was going to set up. Its second headquarters ended up going to northern Virginia, ended up getting significant incentives from the state of Virginia. We've started to see a lot more earlier stage companies expanding to the U.S. take advantage of similar programs on a slightly different scale, obviously, but they're taking advantage of the, uh, let's say, tax rebates or assistance finding talent, assistance finding venture capital, assistance finding office space that the state and the local U.S. economic development agencies are able, able to provide. And sort of all that infrastructure t- together, while it, it may seem a little bit complicated if you just sort of start from, from scratch, uh, at this point, that is a well-traveled path that hundreds, if not thousands, of UK and European tech companies have traveled you know, over the past, let's say, seven to 10 years or so. And it's just, just a matter of sort of knowing who to talk to and, and make, making sure that you're talking to uh, organizations and advisors that are used to dealing with sort of the, the specific needs and nuances of companies coming out of, out of the UK and Europe. I mean, doing that right needs a lot of really good advice, but then executing on it right is, is quite a big undertaking in terms of resources and capital. So when within that kind of journey and how do you kind of advise companies to start approaching U.S. investors? So what we see is, is that on average, and, and I'm going to talk in, in generalizations, and, and cer- certainly if we drill down, I could point out to any number of exceptions, but as a, as a generalization, we usually see that most seed and Series A rounds coming into UK and European-based companies tend to be led by, by UK and European investors. And that at seed and Series A, unless as a UK or European company, you're able to tell an extremely strong US story, right? Where already 40% of your revenues are coming from, from, from the US or you know, founder has, has relocated is now is on, on the ground in the US. You know, already built up, let's say, three, five person team in the US. You know, year on year growth in the States is eclipsing year on year growth in the home market, right? Unless you can tell a story that says to a US investor at Seed and Series A that it doesn't make sense to have an investor in the home market lead the round, then it probably makes more sense to go out to someone in, in the home market to lead the Seed and Series A transaction. You know, and the reason for, for that is, is certainly it's seed and A, you know, to an extent that you won't see so much in growth capital rounds that the seed and series A investor is, is leveraging his or her expertise and network to guide the growth of a scaling business, of a, of a frankly a risky, still at that stage, scaling business. And, you know, those investors in the U.S. who are at seed and series A, they generally know how to roll up their sleeves and help build U.S. businesses, right? And if you haven't, as a company looking at, at U.S. investment, if you haven't sort of proven out the model yet in the U.S. and you're not there yet in a way that, that in fact, the U.S. investor can, can bring to bear that expertise and, and that network, there's not really a fit there, right? And what we find is much more, more common is that when a, when, when a U.K. or European company is thinking about expanding to the U.S., the expansion round of capital which most often happens at A, sometimes it's seed and sometimes it's B, but most often at A, that the U.S. expansion round of capital comes from the U.K. to support you know, commercial scaling in the U.S., which then leads to a potential growth capital round being led by U.S. investors you know, later on. 
But that is that is something that we very regularly talk to uh, talk talk to companies about in the UK and Europe is you know not necessarily spending too much time tooling around Silicon Valley, tooling around New York, trying to get term sheets when there's not really a fit yet with those investors and what they're looking for and and the state the stage of growth and, and specifically U.S. growth of the company that we found that that there's an opportunity cost. To spending too much time doing that when, when that time could be spent do, doing something else. Now, when, when you get a little bit later on, like you know, Series B and later rounds, in at the, the growth capital stage, we do find that on average, let's say, you know, the US story is a little bit less important. And I think that as we found as a as a rule of thumb, you know, seed rounds tend to be local, A rounds tend to be national, and B and beyond tend to be global. You know, and, and, and when you sort of map that on to your growth commercially and operationally as a company, that sort of leads naturally to where you might think about spending most of your time in terms of fundraising. Yeah, I, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think while there's a huge kind of draw into the, to the US VC market, I think doing it from a position of strength is, is always a, a good thing if you can. Um, and one of the key things in the success and, and building the kind of strength is the ability to attract talent. You made a obviously really interesting observation around the, the tax incentives or, um, or the financial incentives of, of facing in, in different parts of, of the US. And that's going to become more and more of a consideration, I would imagine, because the, the cost of talent, especially on the West Coast, is so high. So how can European companies compete, let alone win, if they want to get the best people? So a couple observations. I think first is that the companies coming out of the UK and Europe that are most successful, certainly initially in, in, in the US, are, are, are the ones that, that give some, some real thought to what's the best location for the various roles in, in the organization. In, in other words, you know, does it make sense to go try to fight it out for developer talent in Silicon Valley? Right, where developers coming right out of school are making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And probably it makes more sense to leverage the lower cost base of, of being able to hire those people back in, in the UK or, or in Europe. I think what we see is that disproportionately the employees who end up sort of providing the, the, mo- the most value for their, for their salaries you know, tend to be in the US. It tends to be the salespeople and customer support, you know, BD and, and marketing. And I think disproportionately, we find UK, European companies tend to set up that way, certainly to start, is, is hire a small sales and, and customer support team that if they perform well, can really provide ROI in the US. So that that's the first thing, right? Is, is, is that being, being smart about who you look to hire in the first place. But even then, right, the, the question remains, you know, how do you compete for, for sales or other types of talent, you know, with, with U.S. companies, especially when on average, you know, a U.S. company might be somewhat better funded right, than the average U.K. or European company. And we found that actually there are a few different advantages that, that U.K. and European companies can, can bring to bear. One of them in particular is the approach of saying to the U.S. team that you know, part of being you know, an employee at this company is that the, the U.S. employees have to come over to the, the HQ over the, the U.K. or Europe, let's say, you know, a week every quarter, right, or a week every, every, every six months. And on average, you know, certainly American, Americans don't tend to travel to other countries you know, as frequently as, um, as people who live in, live in Europe, right? And that is the real perk of the job to a lot of Americans is, is saying, hey, if I, as a U.S. employee, get, get to go over to London 
for a week and, and maybe book bookend a, l- a little bit of uh, vacation or holiday on either side of of, the, of, of that that week in, in in London. You know that turns into a pretty nice uh, perk of the job, and that is actually a competitive advantage that could be brought to bear there. And then add that on to a commitment to providing you know UK or European levels of holiday. Right? Is that you know, Americans tend to take on average much less holiday than employees do in, in, the, in the UK and Europe. And yes, on average, salaries tend to be higher. But, you know, there's, there's certainly plenty of employees out there who would sort of gladly trade maybe a, a little bit more little more holiday, you know, in exchange for a little bit lower salary. And again, again you know, if, if, if you go out and find the right people, that's an advantage that a UK or European company can, can bring to bear. And then finally, there's a little, little bit of a hack that I'll share that I've, I've seen a, a couple of uh, UK companies deploy and that is you know offering part of the salary that they're providing to US employees as um, as a reimbursement of holiday expenses right maybe saying okay well you know your your salary is going to be let's call it you know hundred thousand dollars and five thousand dollars of that is only going to be paid out to you as uh, as the reimbursement of holiday expenses and you know a number of US companies have moved to unlimited holiday well you know in some respects unlimited holiday creates the peer pressure to potentially take less holiday, right? Because everyone's sort of pulling in the same direction toward the big exit. And, you know, you don't want to feel that you're somehow letting anyone else on, on the team down. But by actually instilling a culture in your business, both in, in UK and Europe on the one hand and the US on the other, that actually as a company, we want you to be out there, you know, recharging the batteries and taking a little bit of holiday. And then actually putting a little bit of money behind that. You know, you are creating a, a different, a materially different culture than most US companies do. And I'm not saying that that'll be attractive to every U.S. employee, but it will, it will certainly be a differentiator. And we, we've seen at least a few, few companies successfully deploy that strategy to hire some pretty interesting talent. It's a great hack. You know, you take a week off and you, you get more money in your pocket. And I think what you're clearly saying, though, is that European companies have got to be creative. They've got to be innovative. They've got to play to their strengths. They can't try and compete head to head. Um, in uh, necessarily, so they've got to think differently, and, and I think that's a that's a really good, really good message to take away. I, I wanted just to kind of to try and bring things kind of full circle and talk about the kind of the maybe the end game, if you like. You know, there's one thing in all of these technology companies we invest in have in common is that they they want to achieve some kind of material outcome for themselves or the business, or create a business that endures through a public listing. So uh, I'm wondering if you could give us a taste of what you foresee for the US public and private markets and the impact on European founders over the next few to five to to 10 years, if that's even possible to do. I mean, I think one of the things that that we've certainly seen, you know, throughout 2019 is, is a number of sort of large tech exits, right? Some by, by, by a number of the, the, the big US, uh, US venture-backed tech companies, so Lyft and Uber, a number of others over the course of the year. And, you know, one of the things that, that we're sort of seeing in the market is that if you look back, let's say in London in particular, and, and you, you see where the, where the venture capital started to come in in force, let's say, and the uh, C rounds really started to grow, let's say in 2012, 2013, the A rounds really started to scale maybe beginning in 2015, 2016. And then the last few years have seen you know, a whole run of, of, of sizable growth, growth capital rounds. And I think from what we've seen historically in the U.S., you know, that sort of pattern leads to, you know, after, let, let's say, eight to 10 years or so, a significant run of 
let's say, trade sale exits, private equity purchases, and, uh, and, and IPOs. And I think as a, what we're seeing is maybe a bit of a prediction is that that leads to, let's say, bit, bit between you know, 2021 and, you know, 2025 or 2027. And I think, I think that, that, that there's going to be a real run of companies coming out of the UK and Europe, London in particular, that are going to find whether it's U.S. acquirers or whether it's the U.S. public markets. I think that, that, there's, that there's going to be a wave there of interesting exits. And, and I think that just saying that objectively, looking at the, the way that the money has come into the ecosystem over the years, eventually that, that money is going to find an exit. And you know, the US, US acquirers and US public markets still on average tend to be the markets that are, and the acquirers that are sort of best placed for, for the largest exits. You know, remains to be seen what will happen, but there are so many quality companies now that have done some really interesting things over the past 10 years and, and really scaled massively with venture and growth capital. The sort of logical next step for that are, uh, are significant exits in the United States. I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, if I reflect back on the same kind of time period, that the increased sophistication of the, the investment community and the increasing increased sophistication of the, of the founder community and the support ecosystems over the last uh, 10 years has been quite extraordinary in, in Europe and, in, and in, in London, closer to home, but right the way across Europe, where, you know, if you go to Stockholm or Paris or Berlin, or, you know, the, the, the emergence of this you know, ecosystem has been extraordinary and quite transformational. And what's particularly interesting, to me at least, is that what we're talking about there, you know, maybe a, uh, you know, a wave of, of eventual exits, is, is in no way the end. You know, it's, it's very much the beginning, because that's what really sets the so-called flywheel going, is that you get significant exits, and then, then you have you know, executives, founders, employees who have um, extensive experience now you know, launching, scaling, and, and exiting technology companies, and who, who probably have um, you know, made a fair bit of money from the exit. And disproportionately, what we've seen in the U.S. is that those, those individuals do one of two things. They go and, and create their own technology companies. And certainly the former employees of the exited companies go and create their own companies. And then some of them go and, uh, you know, and become investors and invest in the next generation of technology companies. And, you know, you do that over a few generations and suddenly that's how you create Silicon Valley, right? You have a sort of well-oiled machine of an ecosystem that is constantly creating great companies and great funds and great investors and creates a real institutional ecosystem knowledge about how to build and scale great tech companies. And I think that that's coming. Right. And sort of the last bit of that beginning um, cycle or the exits for this sort of current generation of, of really fantastic companies. But as I said, you know, that's that's just the beginning. In no way is it is it the end. Exciting. I'm very positive now about London even more than <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Dan, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I'm sure we will be back again talking about this during uh, sometime next year as well. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Merry Christmas. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.